So here we are on day two. What is today? Today is uh, the 29th of March. So right. almost the end of the quarter. And um, I get the opportunity to sit with you. And this is really the first time we met face-to-face -face was today, right? Correct. Today, yeah. Do you, uh, why don't you do me a favor? Why don't you introduce yourself? And then um, and then we'll start at the beginning, like how we first sure. connected. Yeah. So go for it. What's your name, rank, serial number, all that stuff. <laughs> So yeah, my name's Alan Roach. I uh, live in the Chicago area and I work for HDR and I'm leading our data center commissioning team uh, for all Nationwide? of North America. Oh, okay. For all of North America. So, you know, looking to reach into uh, Canada and I uh, even talked about trying to get down to Mexico at some point and uh, figure out how that works. So, you know, our company uh, does commissioning globally all over uh, Europe and even Australia and Singapore. And so now... Uh, it only makes sense that we're doing business with all these U.S.-based companies to then establish ourselves in North America. And so I was brought in to do that uh, about seven or eight months ago. No kidding. Uh, to do that. So it's, it's, uh, it's a little daunting, but, it, 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 but at the same time, it's super exciting. It's a really good opportunity. And it, I think it exemplifies what you talked about today at the conference of there is a massive need for people good people that can that are driven to do do work and, and get in this industry that somebody like me within three years of being in this industry elevated it to this position you know yeah it's so, pretty amazing i definitely want to understand how you got there but we're going to start maybe from the beginning because you you uh you had a really stupid job before this right what did you do <laughs> so yeah prior to this i was a submarine officer so, oh the worst so, <laughs> cheers to that cheers <laughs> salute Auga. thanks for yeah. thanks for being here by the way Alan. so this is awesome so yeah i was a submarine officer and i uh, got out of the navy while i was in norfolk virginia and decided to stick around there because we're having our third uh third daughter so went to work for oceaneering a, a company that does work on submarines and aircraft carriers so easy transition right Hmm. And uh, working on submarines and worked in the shipyards and managing projects. And, you know, I was an engineer on a submarine, spent a lot of time in meetings. And I, hey, I'd see the Real guy. Real quick, though, so that people don't know what that means. You were an engineer on a fast attack submarine, which means you are the biggest nerd on that submarine. Absolutely the biggest nerd. Like, doesn't even probably know how to talk to a, a it, female. And so. has no idea what's going on in real life either because I'm <clears throat> on the boat 18 hours a day. No cell phone. Oh, no sure. cell phone reception. No, no. The, probably the know. worst job on the ship as an officer. Would you agree? 100%. And yeah. and you get you get spot promoted to 04, right? You get more money. I've never met anybody said that the extra money is worth it. Uh, and, I, and so and I knew that going into, and then I had to prove it for myself that, yeah, it wasn't worth it. All right. So listen, we're going to start. <laughs> let's take it back to the very beginning too because – I am obviously genuinely fascinated with with your background, your story, and uh, I had the chance to work for amazing people on the, the the boat I was on. But when did how did we get connected, and how long ago was that? Because I know it was just random. And then um, and then we're gonna we're gonna dive back yeah. because I think you you have a, a hybrid background in the Navy as well, right? Yeah. So so <clears throat> let's back it up to my previous firm. Well, how know, about this? Back it up yeah. to where were you born and raised? Yeah, so born and raised Blue Island, Illinois. So all my family's from the south side uh, of Chicago. We're mostly Sox fans, so I'm a big White Sox fan. Got season tickets for this year. I'm pretty excited. I was uh, a little nervous about the the baseball this podcast strike this is year. over. Yep. Yeah. So I'm kidding. Go ahead. I'm not a Cubby fan. Though. Sorry. I, you know, I'm a baseball fan. I best tickets I've ever had was at Cubs games growing up. My uncle worked at the Levy Restaurant, the Stadium Club. We'd do Mother's Day brunch at Wrigley Field. And, How uh, cool is that was, baseball field, though? Oh, it was amazing. I mean, I, I love going there. We used to sit. Uh, my dad's boss had season tickets, and we would go, and we'd sit first row behind the Cubs on deck circle. I could reach out and touch Sammy Sosa if I That's wanted. That's ridiculous. And I'm sitting there, 10 years old, wearing my Sox hat. People give me crap, but, like, I didn't care. I'm a Sox fan. Good for you. But, but I'm a baseball fan. Like, I'll go to a baseball game anywhere. All right. It. So you were a baseball fan, had poor judgment in baseball teams, it sounds mm -hmm. like, but were smart. And then you went to uh, – were you an athlete? Yeah, no, played baseball, wrestling, football. Well, wait, did you and, wrestle? Uh, senior year, wrestled 162. Chunky monkey, from, huh? Uh, I was a 125 <clears throat> freshman up to 162. Yeah, oh, there you so, go. All right, now we're speaking my but, language. Uh, yeah, I had a good time. Uh, Mark Rudiger was uh, my wrestling coach. His mm. brother is Rudy. As oh, Rudy. no kidding. 
So, so yeah. do you get to meet Rudy? I guess he's... every year. Uh, he's got, uh, so he's got three other brothers that have that were high school wrestling coaches. Oh, wow! And we'd have a Ruder Cup every year, and so That's you really know, cool. so it was really cool, like good, cool, like a family uh, tournament <clears throat> type thing, and and uh, yeah, Rudy'd be there. So. Uh, cool. Uh, I only that? saw him there once, so because I mean it was just like a varsity thing, so I really participated that like my junior senior year. But, Super but inspiring was, story, though. I mean, it was incredible. Yeah, it was awesome. I mean, like just the, there's a ton of wrestling history in, in, in that area. And Amazing wrestling so. in that state, though. Yeah. There's uh, Texas last year in high school shipped down a couple of kids from private school because I I don't know if you guys were able to compete due to COVID. And those guys came down to Texas and <clears throat> oh, that's awesome. Plowed through a bunch of people and uh, thank God went back to Illinois. So, but uh, okay. So you wrestled and you wrestled in high school and, and, and then from high school, then what? So uh, 12 days after high school ended, <laughs> I, I left for boot camp. I said, you know, I, I, I'd signed up before my senior year. Ooh. So I depped in full in everything. I said, you know, why, I, I, you know, I, uh, I was always intrigued by it. So I'm an Eagle Scout. I was a Boy Scout. Um, yeah. You sort of really back things up, you know, leadership and where that comes from. One of the best decisions our, our my parents ever made for us is we were graduating Cub Scouts, moving into Boy Scouts, and the existing Boy Scout troop that was there wasn't very good. And but there was like ten of us that were going, so they said, "Well, we got enough people. Let's just start our own troop." So there was never anybody senior to me, right? It was you're the junior guy, you're brand new, but. You, you got to immediately mentor each other. And, you know, and eight out, I think 10 of us went on to become Eagle Scouts. And, and so we never had anybody really other than the adults getting us along there. So, so I was a leader from the start, right? So awesome. immediately thrown into that position, you're, you're thrown into leadership positions within the Scouts. And I just think that is a huge reason that molded my leadership you know, from a very early age. So why did you pick Navy versus there's leadership opportunities in every branch? The, I wanted the hardest thing, right? And well, you got it. <laughs> right? So Nailed what it. is the toughest thing? What's the hardest thing to get into? Um, there was the educational benefits from being from the state of Illinois, looking to just do a few years, get out, go get free school. Sure. That was the initial goal. And then, uh, like I said, I, I got in, but then I was enlisted and I looked around. I said, mm, I, don't, I like this, but I think I need more, right? I need to be What able did you to do? do? What was your NEC? So I was, a, I was a nuke mechanic. Okay. Uh, I got picked up uh, for my officer. Program. I was going to be an ELT. I picked up to go to ELT school, but never actually went to ELT school because at the timing, I just got picked up for the officer program. And so that was then, pretty uh, quick then. You must have had pretty decent high school grades or something? Or? Yeah, no, I had good grades, you know, top 10%. Went to a huge high school over, you know, graduated about a thousand people. When you go to school so, like that and you are in the top 10% and you've enlisted in the Navy before you even started your senior year, did you just not see a path to college or you were just like, mm, I need something different? I didn't, I didn't know how. Like, I love my parents, but they didn't know how. They didn't sure. know how to, they didn't know how to grow they just didn't me. Know. They didn't yeah. know. I didn't know. I didn't have anybody to in my family that went to college that said, this is how you go to college. This is how you do it. This is how you get a scholarship. This is how you do this stuff. And so I've always figured things out my own way. My mom likes to tell a story is kindergarten. And I woke her up one day, like I'm backpack on. I ate, made my own breakfast and I said, mom, bus is here. I'm leaving. And she woke up like, oh my gosh. How cool oh, is she that? She felt so bad. But then it was like, no, mom, I got this. I'm good. Right? I wish so that, I could that, do that to all my kids. That'd be amazing. <laughs> so that and that's that's kind of been my whole life. I've always been that way. Is I'm gonna do it my way and I'm gonna figure it out on my own. You know, I've I've never I've gotten to gotten everything I have in this life with a lot of help, but it, ultimately it's no one's gonna help me more than me. And yeah. so I got to figure it out on my own. So. I like that story. So you're graduating high school. Twelve days later, you're uh, going to school to be a nuke machinist mate, and then you were on. <clears throat> you were supposed to become an ELT, but you got picked up before that part. So you get picked up when I was in prototype up in uh, Boston Spa, New York, uh -huh. and uh, so I spent about three months <clears throat> waiting to go to college, uh, sitting around Boston Spa, New York, and then went to, uh, went to U of I, starting in the. Uh, so, so I had to start in the summer school. So it was weird, weird starting college in summer, trying to find a place to live when there's kids still like getting ready to take their finals and. Uh, so that was interesting. So it was me and three other uh, guys that all got picked up the same program. We all lived together. So were they enlisted from so enlisted as well? All the same program. So one was an electrical engineer, one was a physics, and then two of us were mechanical engineers. So me and one of my roommates were both mechanical engineers. So we took every class, but I think two together. So what what program was it like? There was NECP, Nuclear Enlisted Commissioning Program. Gotcha. And then it eventually turned to State 21. Okay. So same thing. They just repackaged the program differently over the years. And then was there like... 
Do you lose a bet? Why do you go to where you went? Or U of I? I'm kidding. It's a great school, obviously. <laughs> Huge brains coming from that school. But what? Why there? You want to be back home versus Close. just under two hours away from gotcha. home. Gotcha, gotcha. And, and then it's a good engineering school. I mean, from fantastic. mechanical engineering, it was outstanding. I, I one of my best department heads went to school there, and there's a lot of guys in this industry, and I, obviously. And I don't think I appreciate it till later in life that how much weight that carries, say, a mechanical engineering degree from U of I. Mm-hmm. You know, not just some other other school. So, uh, you know, definitely learned to appreciate it over time. And, and the fact that I did it in three years, I graduated. So I did two years in the Navy, went to college, got my degree in three years. There are guys I went to high school with that graduated the same time as me because they took five years, but they did an internship and studied abroad or sure. did other things, but I still did it in three, you know? And to me, that was probably like my most, because it wasn't easy. And then to do it in three years and to sure. still get a 3.0 GPA, you know, is, uh, was tough. And <laughs> then when you graduate, do, <clears throat> did they make you guys being former Enlisted, you probably didn't have to go to another, you had to probably go to like an OTS I was school. supposed to go to OCS, but okay. then we were able to work something out and do everything through the ROTS unit. So I got commissioned there. So that's where they teach you which fork to use and exactly. all that stuff. Exactly, knife and fork school. I got you. I didn't have to go do that. I was able to get commissioned through the ROTS unit and yeah, it, was a, it was a good deal for us. And then what? Then uh, off I went to go through the pipeline again as an officer. So I went through the pipeline, did my first submarine out of Groton, Connecticut. Did uh, you pick that boat? I, you get to pick your priorities. What do you want, right? Is it location? Is it operational? I wanted, my number one priority was I wanted an operational boat. Okay, so I you didn't did. care what you were doing. You just wanted a boat that was already going to sea. I wanted you a fast tack operation. I didn't want to be in a shipyard. I didn't want to be in a boomer. I didn't care if I was in Hawaii or Connecticut or Virginia. So you didn't I just base. wanted something operational. I got you. And what was the boat again? <clears throat> the Alexandria. Definitely uh, uh, saw that boat in Groton when I was yeah, there. How long, yeah. when, when were you in, by the way? Yeah, that was 2006 is when I showed up to that boat. So 2004, oh. I got commissioned, went through the pipeline, 2006. Uh, showed up to the Alexandria, and then I named my third daughter Alexandria. Oh, that's great. Yeah. Is that where you got your fish at, I guess? Yeah. Is that yeah. why? Yeah. That's a cool thing. So what was the Alexandria doing back in those days? Were they just doing med runs? Were they doing counter-drug interdictions? Golf. or Yeah, Persian Gulf area and back. So we, I did two deployments. I did an ISEX. Um, so she had the blue was, nose. Did you get the blue oh, nose? Yeah. yeah. Right. And so we get, we, I showed up there right at the right time. I showed up in January and I spent the next 10 out of 12 months at sea. That's I mean, awesome. I, I, I lived in a house and I couldn't remember how to, you know, get home sometimes because I'd only lived there for a couple weeks out of that, you know, for the first year that I lived there. So, so it was super high op tempo, did a lot of really cool stuff in deployment, had amazing leaders. And, uh, you know, I still keep in touch with so many of those guys from that boat. Um, in between the two, so in the that's an I class. What was the hole? What's seven five seven? Yeah, so that's an advanced boat. Yeah, right. An I boat, and we are one of the. We had a lot of new technology put on the boat, uh, new new periscopes, infrared, and all sorts of stuff. It was, sure. So the first deployment went to the Persian Gulf, came back, and then our second deployment, I was the, the senior JO. Same thing, Persian Gulf. So we knew the area. We knew um, we were very familiar with. Uh, so being the senior JO it was it was super advantage um, so over some of the other people that were on board. So to those that are listening that hadn't served, uh, so the senior junior officer, officer so yeah. that means you're, a div- you're maybe a division, division officer. head. Okay. And basically, you know, I ran the communications department, so all the radio men and, uh, helping, uh, probably a cool job. It was, yeah. I reported directly to the captain basically because yeah. the, the navigator was also the operations officer, but he was busy being the navigator. So it was it really became more, I was like the assistant operations officer as well with, with in conjunction with some of the other guys that were on board. So we had a really good group of guys and, and then, uh, that whole experience too, in between, we got to do an ice axe. So I went up under the ice. Oh, wow. and did all You that. punched so, through. Yeah. Hmm. That'd be pretty we, awesome. We surfaced nine times. Uh, got to be in, uh, got to be in a movie. Oh, really? Which one? Um, so this, uh, sci-fi show called Stargate. Okay. Heard of it. so it was, it's with Richard E. Anderson, MacGyver. Okay. And so I was a pretty big fan of the show and I get made fun of, oh, you're a nerd for watching the show, whatever. Of course. And then I find out that, uh, you know, I was a big fan of MacGyver's kid, right? Grew up in the eighties. <laughs> and then, uh, got to find out that we're going to shoot scenes for a movie. Well, I got to be in a scene with MacGyver, right? So it's just me and him. I'm like this guard Shut outside up. the wardroom. And so there's this scene, he comes out and I just say, ah, you know, bark, he barks some stuff at me and I say, yes, sir, and move on. And that scene took like, it's such a small scene, but it took like eight, eight tries for him to get it right. I just had to stand there and say, yes, sir. And then, you know, I'm standing there just outside the wardroom and all the other guys are standing like four feet down trying to get us to crack up and laugh and whatever. So, uh, so yeah, that's, I've seen some ice photos recently that, uh, 
uh, made me think about that. And actually, I posted it on Facebook, the other, you know, some screen grabs of the movie and tagged a bunch of guys that were on the boat. And so, uh, yeah, we've recently been reminiscing about- Which boat was that again? The Alexandria. Okay, That same was 2007. One. That's pretty awesome. So that was awesome. That was one of the neatest experiences, not only just getting up on the ice and doing everything we did, but our submarine was filmed surfacing through the ice and then submerging. And, and then I got to be in the movie. It was pretty cool. So, so did MacGyver ever go to sea with you guys? No, he, they weren't just, at sea, but like we were literally just yeah. surfaced through the ice, sitting there. We got to have lunch, yeah, uh, with them and and hang out with them in the wardroom, and it was it was really neat. Was he cool? Fun. Oh yeah, super cool. So, funny story is when um, we're doing taking pictures and and uh, we're giving them hats and taking pictures, right? And we give them this hat, and submarines you got that little leather band, right? Because you can't have plastic because it's could melt. So he's got that class. He's trying to adjust the hat, and he's fiddling around with it can't figure it out and it's like silent and we're all like thinking and he says it he goes ah macgyver huh yeah right ah! <laughs> so he even knew so even yeah he's like look that. it's he's just like, a roll it's just an act <laughs> yeah so that that was the highlight definitely of uh of that uh experience when you were on that and you did two tours it sounds like which is i mean i love being on a submarine it's somewhat rare but yeah to do two deployments in a three-year span was high up tempo is that is that you must have had a really good skipper then that yeah, had a lot of confidence by the two company. great skippers absolutely and that's awesome that's a testament to those guys right so the the thing is at that time were you like you know you're the bull jo or whatever they call it, right but you were you thinking hey man I mean I could do this forever I could do this for I'm gonna do 20 years or were you like I was only coming in the military to get my college paid for yeah and they did that now I'm in it I'm on bonus time I mean yeah I, I mean I Absolutely. I saw myself, I could become a CEO someday. Absolutely, okay. Right. Um, was that the goal? So I, yeah, that, that was the goal. You know, I was going to do everything I could, but, but also leaving it out, right? Like I didn't have to because of my prior enlisted time and everything else. So, um, you know, and that kind of started to change a lot when I did my department head tour where things were a little bit more rough. It was uh, a little more challenging. And then uh, thinking about my future and getting married and having kids because I didn't have any kids at the time. So um, were you married at the time? I was married at the time and, uh, you know, and then got subsequently divorced when I went to shore duty after my first boat. That just didn't work out. Very but, typical but on subs, so. It was, but, you know, we had our own issues. I wouldn't say uh, it had much to do with the Navy, though. Um, so. Uh, well, a lot of people just, um, I saw it a lot. It's right? a challenge. Like, yeah. there was a sonar tech that I served with who was a, a chief. And um, he had been in the Navy for like 17 years. And uh, he re-enlisted for three more to get to his 20. And I said, does that mean you'll spend your last three years on shore duty? And he's like, no. He's like, I, I've combined in my life spent less than one year on shore duty. I've met guys like that. Yeah. And I'm like, did you get in trouble? I mean, what happened? He <clears> goes, well, my wife and I love each other and we have the greatest relationship. It just really only works if I'm gone like 250 days out of the year. <laughs> and I was like, I remember it's thinking, weird. I'm like, that's a horrible thing. And then yeah. I was like, now that I'm married, you know, I'm like, I totally get it. You know, so I'm like, <laughs> I gotta go into deployment. So no, but uh, I, I saw that, you know, uh, People come back and oh, they weren't used to the routines and yeah, it changed everything. I mean, it's tough to, to <clears throat> adjust and learn. I mean, it's sure. you know, just, I leave for a week and I come home and my wife and I got to relearn each other. She's sure. like, no, you don't understand. Like, cause the kid, we got kids now and the kids change and what they want or what they expect. And it's like, whoa, hold on. What just happened? All Especially kids when you drop a type A alpha inside of there. who's like, let me optimize this process. It sucks. And they're like, shut up, go home or go 100%. back to work. Absolutely. So I get it. Um, yeah. So when you went from Alexandria, what did you do after that? You went to shore duty. Yeah, I taught there at the submarine school in Groton, Connecticut. For so, what? Uh, what was that? Was it like taught a, the basic. So taught the officers the basic, and then the advanced course. I got oh, the is that where their best heads. is at for officers? So yeah, it's basically that's where the. Um, so before you go to your first post a junior officer, you go through the SOBIC course. It's the basic submarine officer basic course. Then they have the SOAC course, submarine officer advanced course. How long is that? How long that, is each uh, one of those? So SOBIC, I think it's like the eight weeks, and then the advanced is like three, four months. Is it hard? So uh, it got harder. I was actually there. So the Hartford collision happened. Mm. So 2000. Was that outside of Hawaii? So, they got run over in the Persian Gulf. Gulf. Oh, yeah. And uh, they were at periscope depth and they got hit. And so there's a big, so there was a big investigation and a lot of things changed, including evaluating the curriculum at those schools. So I was there for the curriculum development. So I got to lead the charge on, hey, how do we change the course? How do we make it better? And, and the advanced course for the department, I'm like, we made this harder. I'm like, well, people are going to fail. And 
the very first class that went through the new curriculum, we had one person fail. Like to me, I, I felt bad for the guy, but I also felt like, all right, what we did was success, right? We made it difficult that it's going to weed out the people. Thank that you for doing that. They can't right. do that. So that's the one thing I, <clears throat> I think when people ask me like, what was it like to be in the submarine community? I say, I, I just feel like I was very lucky because I was around a lot of people that had a very high standard for things. Mm -hmm. doesn't mean they're all very intelligent or smart and there's a difference between, you know, um, street smart and I guess, you know, high aptitude intellectually when it comes to, you know, book smart, but you're around a really unique hybrid. I mean, it is the Island of Misfit Toys, I always say it, right? And and you're gonna find outliers of all kinds there. But the one thing that they all had a common thread on was, uh, I think the one thing that would probably irritate most of them the most was any any adoption of any form of mediocrity, yes. right? It was just like, why are we not raising the bar every time? Yep. Like you've never arrived. And I think that that's one thing that really transcends well for us into this industry Agreed. now. And I I feel like it's an advantage in many ways. And and from transitioning, so my first job out of the Navy, I was working in the shipyards and doing things. But then when I came into this AE industry, right, getting into commissioning and doing this, everybody around you, it's very similar in that everyone's very smart. <clears throat> they're very good at the job. They're very motivated, you know, and, and, and driven. So it, there's a lot of parallels there, yeah, you know, and and it's, that attracted me. I liked that. Where whereas like hey, you you gotta you have to perform. You've got to you have to match. Other, you you're gonna always find somebody. I think that's gonna hey that exceeds your excitement. <clears throat> that exceeds that you could achieve. That you could strive to be. You know more like and say hey that guy's got something. I want some of that. I want to be more like that. There was always know? all stars. I had so and especially in the submarine forest. You know you have just really smart people all around you and there's constant and. And you're all in it together. And so we're all, you know, it's all about being collaborative and supportive and, and helpful. And there was a lot of that there for me. And and I and I appreciate it. And then what I really enjoyed was then once I became that senior person is repaying the help that I got and then turning around and, re and helping other people and saying, hey, you need to work on this. You know, like I'm going to help you or seeing that like this guy's got a ton of potential. You know, I want to I want to help foster that and make sure that they don't succumb to some of the bad leadership and, and uh, bad culture, you know, and try to help support them and become as successful as I could be or even more, right? And, you know, as, as, a, as a leader, I, wa I wanted to be, I wanted to see people be, be more successful than I could possibly be because I, I, I love that teaching and mentoring, right? Going all the way back to when I was a Boy Scout, right? Teaching a kid how to light a fire, you know, that that's, uh, yeah, I've done that later in life and helping out when I was in the Navy, I helped out with Boy Scout troops in Hawaii and, got to help teach kids how to start a fire with one match. And they're like, how do you do that? I'm like, oh, let me show you. And I'm like, let's, 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 let's talk about it. Let's, how, let's, let's show you different ways to do it, not just one way. And then, uh, yeah, and that, that whole aspect of teaching people too is really keen to me. It's, you can't teach everybody the same way. You really have to get to know people. And whether it's submarine force, data centers, it's Boy Scouts, it's, it doesn't matter. We're all just people trying to get things done and, and learning how people tick and, and, yeah, getting really big philosophical here, but like no, those are the things that make for. me tick and, and you know, we, uh, start with why, Simon Sinek's books, you know, finding people's why, you know, I'm, I'm really passionate about that kind of stuff and and understanding emotional intelligence. And I think that's that's one thing that's super important in, in the submarine force where you're just around people nonstop, right? But you have that military aspect and then and then in the uh, in the data center industry and in just any industry, the the importance of that emotional intelligence, how you talk to people, you know, the the chemical process that happens when you say someone's name. They say, "Hi, Kirk, how you doing?" Right? When you say that person's name, there's a chemical reaction that happens in their brain that makes them feel good, you know. And and I, if you've ever had a leader that does that and says that, like they say people's names all the time, they'll say it twice. They say it the first time they meet you. They say you're walking out the door. Then there's some people that like, oh, what, you know, they're not very good at names or, you know, they'll write it down if they, if they, there's some people that don't go that extra mile to really make that very intentional. And I appreciate that now through research and readings and things that I've done is that when people do go out the way to, to know your name, know your kid's name, know your wife's name. Um, I think that stuff's very important and, and, and under, and, and now, and I understand it now, why certain leaders in the past were certain ways. And, and uh, I think that's awesome. And I think everyone should, you know, strive. It's, it's, you can become a better leader by reading and learning and studying and, but having conversations with people like, Hey, what works for you? So, so there's a lot of stuff out there where people can, uh, it, it's, it, 
learn to become better leaders. You can do it via learn via reading, but then you have to then put that practical application in and execute it and so, practice it. So where did you get that from? So I, <clears throat> so I was at the Air Command and Staff College after my department head tour. Yeah, now we're all over the place. Let me back it up. So you yeah. went to shore duty where you were actually, <clears throat> you had the opportunity because of a catastrophic event that happened in the Navy. Not, I don't think anybody died on the Hartford. Hartford. No. Okay. No, no, no. So, um, yeah. but you were, it, you know, at ground zero and had the opportunity to lift the bar, raise the standard yeah, on what it is that you were teaching the officers. On that, on that, on, on that How uh, long curriculum. That? How long was that? So I was there for about two and a half years. So at that, like I know the schools that I went through and I know that they were trying to make a very, you know, um, it was really good at getting you ready to be on that boat, right? Mm -hmm. But they weren't teaching us like necessarily leadership. Like they were like, you guys got to go be a part of the cog and then you better hope that there's a chief or somebody, you know, you have an ecosystem of those, those people, you know, could be first class, whatever, but those people that are going to be blocking and tackling for you and showing you a path to go through to develop it, you know, and, and, and that's when you started getting good enough at your job as a subject matter expert, then they started introducing you to other, other unique things to teach you, you know, such as leadership. Yeah. And, you know, I, I'm a huge Senec fan like you. He had actually a really profound impact on me years ago when I first stumbled onto some of those Ted talks and then, yeah. you know, I mean, infinite, I've read everything yeah. he has, I think. And, but I will tell you, you're right. I think that there is um, those people that show that they are committed enough to understand your name or know your name, they're identifying you as significant, right? And that's mm -hmm. what we, I think, really get triggered from. I had leaders that had that. So that's, I guess my questions, My one of my questions would be, did they teach you guys at the, at the school? Because, or was it just that we, like those types of people tended to gravitate more towards that role and we're more successful as a byproduct of that. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think I think there's there's a lot of people that gravitate towards that and just kind of figure it out naturally. And some people it does come naturally. Some people you have to work at it. And um, you know, the leadership I remember in the Navy was oh they do the uh, what's what's the uh, Migs Briar or whatever. Oh you know, yeah, Briar's Migs. Yeah, yeah Myers Briggs. You know, tests and help you figure that stuff out. But you don't really dive deep into it. Um, a lot of it's a lot of technical training uh, w through the schools. But the, the leadership, it's a like one week we're talking about, you know, are you an ENTJ or what is it that you are and what does that mean? And we talked about it for a few days and you move on. And but it's really, it sounds like more your, your Eagle Scout, Matt, troop leader or whatever. And whoever you had as your department head when you were a JMO or a senior JMO or whoever, maybe a division officer or whatever. But when you got to that point where you were teaching future division officers, is that what you were, is that the band of, I mean, the people that you were teaching mm -hmm. to get onto the submarine, they were, these were like ensigns going into the fleet? I actually, most so I mostly dealt with the, so there, there was the, yeah, the ensigns getting ready to go to their first submarine. Got it. I helped teach uh, the rules of the road and some navigation courses. Um, but I, my larger role was to um, help teach some of the courses for the SOAC course, the advanced course. So the guys that were, had already done their first tour getting ready to go to be a department head. And so I hadn't even gone through. I'm teaching the course. And at some point to be a department, I have to go through that course. So it was really unique. It's interesting. Yeah. So it made it really easy for me when I had to go through the course since sure. I wrote half the tests. But uh um, so it's unique the way that is set up, but you know, we're, we're there and, and, t you know, become experts, subject matter, subject matter experts and whatever we're trying to teach. And, and you get passed down by the senior instructors that are already there and, and you get up to speed. So I ran a lot of the trainers and then I taught some of the, uh, advanced courses with, uh, you know, and I got to teach, they brought in a retired, you know, submarine captain that came in and as a civilian, as like a contractor to, to help mentor as well. And I worked with him. And so they got great. a lot of leadership. It was great. Yeah. Those was, guys have a lot of. Ton of experience. Because they were skippers during the Cold War, right? Oh, yeah. So they yeah. lived in a different environment altogether. And they'd so, pull pranks on me and things like that. And yeah, yeah and we'd pull pranks on each other. And, good. Yeah, yeah. Oh, good times. I'm glad to see that that still exists. And then you went from that shortity, you went to the Corpus? Uh, then I went through that submarine advanced course and then uh, went to the Corpus Christi as the engineer. But in between there is when the whole Memphis uh, opportunity came. Jeez, I didn't so, even realize until so today was, that we both shared, you were on the Memphis yeah. at a certain point. That's I did the very world. last uh, deployment. It was a surge deployment on the Memphis in 2011, 2012. Yeah, beginning of 2012. Was it a good or boat 2011. then? 2011. It was a great boat. They, they had a lot of struggles, a lot of issues. And I think there were some senior leadership issues and the CO was fired. 
And, you know, I'd heard all the kind of the issues they had. I got down there. I'm like, these guys are really good. They're really operational. And they brought in a new captain who was, you know, cause just to try and execute the last three, four months of that boat. And that boat had been very operational over the last three, four years prior to that. There were some amazing guys. There were some culture issues. But I think some of those got fixed and people got fired and, and those people went away. But, uh, but, yeah, it was one of the most fun I've ever had on a submarine was those three, four months of being on deployment. We deployed to the med and back, ended up doing just a bunch of exercises and got to spend a lot of time in uh, pulling into Rota. Sure. Pulling there a few times and went to Sevilla and all that. That sure. was amazing and uh, a good time. But, uh, I yeah. Did, I did, I did three guys. deployments on the Memphis and had two captains, two XOs. Um I don't know what it was, but that boat had a lot of talent. It had a lot of studs and and I didn't know any better. Like I was having a conversation with one of my kids the other day. I'm like, you won't know what a good boss looks like until you've had a bad one, mm -hmm. right? And for me, I came right out of the you know, training, went right to the fleet and um, it was coming right out of the shipyard. Memphis was coming out of the shipyard and uh, I got to do sea trials. I did you know everything with that boat and I did the first three deployments when it came out of the shipyard. Awesome. And And I'll tell you, I didn't know any better. I just assumed every submarine had this caliber of amazing people. And I, I'll i tell you, I learned what a really amazing culture is capable of doing or the value of having a strong culture. Mm -hmm. That's where I learned it. It wasn't you know, in the wrestling room and all those things matter too on the team perspective from a competitive perspective. But here we were literally trusting each other with each other's lives, right? And we were deployed you know, 288 days a year on average, which was great. Right, and I didn't go on a ship to sit at port. I wanted to be gone. Right, I wanted to be doing stuff. I wanted to be significant. I wanted to have you know something that would be cool. Yeah, I worked with amazing people. It wasn't until later that I got out and I realized, man, that's a. I just think everybody uh, has cultures like that, and then I discovered that that's not the case. No, and and each submarine is its own microculture. <laughs> I mean, and and it rides away with the military. You got guys that are constantly rotating in and out, and so that culture you know is only going to last three to four years. Yeah. It could get better, it could get worse, and it's going to get better and worse. And, you know, somebody once said to me, you know, you're, you're never, you're always getting better or getting worse. You never stay in the same. Yeah, it's true. And that it's applies, like a battery. And that applies to culture, yeah. you know? So the culture is going to go up and go down. And, and when enough of the people that are, that carry that good culture go away, and then someone comes in and then affects that culture in a negative way, and then it builds and builds and builds. You're far enough removed from that good culture. And that happens. It's cyclical in, in submarines especially. And, and it's cyclical in, in the civilian industry as well. As people change jobs and people come and people go, the, the culture can move. But I think it's, it's a much more fluid and dynamic in, the, in any military organization where you constantly have that influx. Because you could have the, somebody who's just going to have an immense presence, an immense culture, but you know that person's leaving at some point. So can that person imprint their culture on enough people there to keep it going? And and that happens at times, but at, over time, it eventually does fade away. You get far enough removed from it, and yeah, that culture that was there 10 years ago will not exist 10 years later because you've had enough people changing throughout the company, you know, throughout that organization. It could be better or worse, but it's just going to be different. Well, hopefully they're mentoring those people on how to carry the torch, but and that's when, something I think, you know, that I, sh it's not stressed enough. Like, Hey, we realize you got to recognize you got something good going and how do you make that culture a legacy? You yeah. Know, how do you make it last? Um, I've only read books, you know, submarine books about, you know, turn your ship around. You know, there's a lot of things out there that they talk about where they didn't really change a lot of processes. They were just, um, they were distributing power. Does that make sense? Like unleashing yeah. people to be leaders without needing to have everybody else's right. oversight. And I, I felt that that trust that those leaders were putting into the rest of the, the team was what really gave them the confidence to be successful. So we had really good, we never had any incidents. We had yeah. amazing deployments. Yeah. What did you go on to next? So I did my department tour in Hawaii and that was a whole. So you went from Groton uh, for. Groton. Shore duty and sea duty to six Ho years and then went to Hawaii. <clears throat> Did you want to be in Hawaii? And, uh, yeah, that was part of my, I was like, I was looking forward to, I'm si I was single and I was like, yeah, you know, that's part of my deal in Memphis. I'm like, I'd like to live in Hawaii. I've never been, never been to Hawaii. And, and, uh, that was part of my deal of going to serve in the Memphis was to go to Hawaii. And so I got that, got the deal, um, to go to Hawaii. But then I ended up on a boat that was in the shipyard. It was stationed in Guam and just shifted home port to, from Guam to Hawaii. 
and uh, it was in, you know doing its last availability before it decommed a few years later. Complete 180 from my first submarine experience, like from a, because it was not operational. It was in the shipyards. In Guam or in Hawaii? It was in Hawaii in the shipyard, but a lot of issues. The boat was pretty run down. It was an old submarine and, and uh, they had spent a lot of time in Guam. So you're, you're not doing as much maintenance in Guam because you're so far remote. And, and then uh, I call it the Guamisms. Getting rid of the Guamisms was the most challenging thing I ever faced as a leader. And you were a department head? <clears throat> department as the engineer. So, Oof. you know, third highest in command, you know, with the, just the captain XO above me. And uh, yeah, I had a lot of struggles. I saw my captain XO in tears at, at times. From? The stress of the job. Really? Yeah. Anything in particular? Unrealistic expectations? Or just uh, Cobb, they couldn't get to get yeah, the crew in line? We, or? You know, we, we just kept having issues and without getting into details, it was... Uh, it was just a tough culture and it was a sure. tough culture to break and try and, 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 you know, so we, we became that boat, right? We were the problem child, right? We had sure. problems. It's always one of those. And, one, and once you become that, you know, and it, it was just one thing that happened after another and it's frustrating. Um, did you ever take that ship to sea? Yes. Okay. We did. A, we eventually got to sea and got to where we needed to be and we did a deployment um, that had a lot of material issues on deployment as well. And like so a Westpac doing, or? Yeah, we did a Westpac and, and, but we pulled into Japan just before Christmas, spent a month there, spent four full weeks because we'd fix one thing then the next thing would break we'd fix that and then another thing would break all in series it was never in parallel so it was constantly be ready to spin up to get underway in a day or two and then it'd be another week sure and then we uh broke down a couple more times I had to go to guam so we didn't get any cool poor calls but uh they get to go snowboarding in japan and do some scuba diving in guam so be so kind of cool uh, so it was a, not a bad they, consolation absolutely i was still able to get some fun in and then so. after that what'd you head off to so, and then I spent a year in Montgomery, Alabama at the Air Command and Staff College. And are you a uh, lieutenant degree. commander now or? Yeah, as a lieutenant commander there. As the XO, you were probably. Okay. <clears throat> so, as the engineer. Yeah. Yep. So, sorry, so uh, yeah. So, I did that and then got to go uh, play Air Force for a year. Got to live in an Air Force base for How a year. How did you pick then, that? Uh, I mean, that seems pretty random coming from the fleet. Well, that was, it, so the Navy has the Navy War College in, uh, in Rhode Island and, you mm -hmm. know, each, uh, and then the Army's in Leavenworth. So, and then they you know, they'll do like, like an exchange program type deal. So there was maybe, I don't know, 20 different classes and each class had one Navy guy. So there was like three submarine guys, bunch of pilots and- What uh, was that like? Guys. Sitting around with all so, these pilots that probably thought that they were well, the smartest. The interesting too, every class had two international officers as oh, well. Oh, wow. So our class had somebody- Like from, Germany or? Everywhere, yeah. So our class had somebody from Taiwan, hmm. which was interesting. I think it was the first year they had someone from Taiwan. Uh, and then uh, Slovakia. No kidding. So it was really, uh, so it was really unique. And the, the the Taiwanese officer, he wouldn't wear his dress uniform. He'd wear his like flight suit, but he never wore his dress uniform. They'd list all the countries. The Taiwan was listed, but never a flag, right? So the, the whole geopolitical China Taiwan thing. Oh god. The way that <clears throat> all portrayed, it was very interesting. So I, I wasn't gonna tell any uh, sea stories about my last deployment in the, Ooh, uh, you no, know, the for sure Pacific. So the one thing that stuck out with me, you know, Taiwan, you know, given the recent events, what's going on in Ukraine and everything and sure. well, what's next in Taiwan, you know? So Taiwan is, you know, it's, it's, it's democratic. It's, uh, it's not communist, but there are people in Taiwan, they either see themselves as Taiwanese and democratic, or they see themselves as Chinese and communist. <laughs> so he was explaining to us that culture that there's these two different cultures there, but and someone asked him, well, what do you see yourself as? And he's like, oh, I see myself as Chinese and communist. I was like, whoa. Whoa. Okay. <laughs> I wonder if that that's like the, the correct answer because it has to be the correct answer or if that's a really high I, I don't know. I mean, really nice guy. You know, he's got wife, kids, and everybody there. But uh, just to get that perspective from from somebody else in the military and what he's doing, and it, it, was, it was unique. So then how long is that school? That was a year. And then, so you're on an Air Force base? <laughs> yeah, lived on base and... It was, you know, crappy old housing from like the 1910s sure. or whatever. I was but, born and uh, raised in those Air Force bases, man. <laughs> yeah, but was... uh, but it was fun and nice community. And, all you know, every Friday night we'd have whiskey and cigars on my front porch with the guys that lived around me. And Tell sea stories. So, yeah, just have a good time. It was fun. So, and the best part, I took the uh, German elective there. And uh, it was like a, an experimental thing. They're offering a year-long German elective class. And we read a lot of books and wrote a lot of papers. And But the, the, the German elective, I took four years in high school. And But I got full immersion there, taking language training 
three days a week. Excuse me. <clears throat> and then uh, one day a week, we'd spend a couple hours talking about German culture where we didn't have to speak in German, but we would talk about articles and research and write papers and discuss different topics. So, and then that included a nice little 19-day boondoggle over spring break in Germany. Where we got Did you get to ride like a U-boat? <laughs> Did get to ride a submarine or anything like that, but we... Uh, because uh, I was the only Navy guy, there was a bunch of Air Force, or no, there was me and one other Navy guy, but then it was mostly Air Force people that were in the class. So we, uh, one of our, part of our, the end of our trip, we went up to Kiel, which is up in the north, and got to see um, where they have their minesweepers, and we got to see some submarines and dry dock, and uh, it's a really neat experience. We got to start in Munich. We actually went to Vienna, spent some time in Austria, staying in these old like. World War II style yeah, barracks, no and you got these World War II style structures a lot of history. Uh, that are still there and everything. That was that was really cool. Spent we, three days in Vienna. We did. Um, we were on a med run in '97, <clears throat> and we did uh, some NATO ops, and we had U boats with us, and we got mm -hmm. to you, know, you play games with them before you guys go on station together, just to yeah. make sure that you understand how to function. And they were, I mean, they're diesel boats, right? We were counter detecting them. Uh, pretty far out yeah. right so we always thought that we'd be the ones most vulnerable with you know our reactor coolant pumps running at a high yeah, frequency you they could, don't have the technology that yeah we do, though, yeah but i'll tell you so so you went from there then into what what did you do after that spent a year there and then i spent the rest of my time in norfolk went to the uh um went to the carrier strike group what made you leave the submarine community uh, well, that, that was, yeah, but was, so there's a billet for a submarine officer there. You know, there was another submarine officer there that was like the operations officer. Because So as a carrier strike group, you operate with ASW assets. So you need a submarine guy on the staff to know how to speak submarine, right? Because you're sure. going to operate with submarines in your group. You also have, you're hunting other submarines using uh, helicopters and uh, ships and things like that too. So you, so having that submarine background on the, on a, the Admiral staff is, is what I was doing. Now, was that... Because originally you said, hey, I could see myself as a captain. All these things that you were doing throughout your career, were they to stay on that track to become? At this point, no. At this point. Because I'm like, I, once I, you leave the fleet, you're I not. I originally had orders to uh, um, go to Naples and be a an operation engineer uh, for the squadron there. But, uh, you know, long, long story short, without getting into it, you know, I, uh, plans changed. Uh -huh. And uh, decided I was going to, you know, get out. I got so, you. So I, I finished up the rest of my time and got out. So, um, yeah, and then I, I had one kid and had a second on the way. And, and when so did you get changed. out? What year? So that was uh, 2017. And then in 2017, what did you do? Uh, you wanted to go back to Illinois? No, it was, so I, I got out and we were having our, our second child and said, uh, you know, so it's either go back to Illinois and Chicago area where we've got family support or just stay here in Virginia. So I, uh, you know, stayed in Virginia, went to work in the shipyards and it was easy transition. Right. Sure. So, so went and did that and spent, uh, spent two years, uh, you know, working on submarines in the shipyard and, uh, started doing really well as a project manager and making a name for myself and was having a good time doing it. Um, but I knew I didn't want to do that the rest of my life. I, I needed to uh, break away from that identity and form a new, something new for myself, something, a new challenge, right? I've, I've mm -hmm. overcome the challenge of. Working on submarines, I got it, been there, done that, needed something new to challenge me. So how so. did you uh, go from the shipyard post-retirement, you know, to HDR? So, yeah. So uh, actually a, a Navy, somebody I knew in the Navy when I was in Hawaii was, I knew he was living in the Chicago area and, and uh, I was just curious what he was doing because he was traveling and I just reached out and said, you know, because I was like, I'm coming home soon for my brother's wedding what are you up to? What do you do? And he's just curious what he did for a job. And, and he's telling me about it, about commissioning. And he was working for Cisco Hennessy group at the time. And, and he's like, actually, I could use some help. I go, yeah, well, I'm going to be home in like a month or so. And he's like, yeah, why don't you come in and we'll talk. And I'm like, yeah, sure. It's worth just having a listen and learn something new. What, what is exactly do they do? What is commissioning? Cisco's so, a big shop, right? So yeah, about five, 600 people. Yeah. And I uh, had yeah, really good offices in Chicago and I, Sat down and talked to them, and and, you know, and uh, pretty much it was a job interview. And they, and I said, well, when are you looking for someone to start? And he was like, oh, can you start Monday? And I was for like, real? oh, wow, okay. But um, so I needed some time to transition and move my family. So I, I took the job, and about two months later, I'm back in Chicago, and uh, yeah, working for Cisco Hennessy, doing commissioning, and then 
Um, so not just data centers, but we were working on hospitals and office buildings and wh whatever we could commission, we were doing it but with the focus on building a data center commissioning team. So, cause I guess in the past they had had a data center commissioning team and it kind of dwindled away and they're trying to build it back up as, and then, you know, as the data center boom, if you will, happened in 2020, it was, uh, um, as we entered COVID and everything. So, so that was a unique time, right? So I'm learning, I'm trying to learn the industry and then I just moved back home and then so COVID, that's in like COVID 20, shuts the world down. I was like, so in 2019 or early. So it was like November, 2019 is when I started. Okay. And then, uh. And then so a few months later is when COVID hit. COVID, you know. Were you in an office? Everybody. Were you reporting to the office back yeah, then? Yeah, I was working in the office. But, you know, uh, but it, it was, I'd work from home every now and then just like because I'm in, on, in the field doing something, you know, but then maybe I'd work in the office on Friday or something like that. But uh, for the most part, I was still learning and still work, working in the office. And then when COVID happened and everything went remote and yeah. When did you decide that um, you wanted to become a data center specialist? Or did you? The I, so what I, I just doing my own research and seeing like I wanted to find something. You know, I wasn't sure what that was. And then when I realized what a data center is, right? It's a giant building that you can't lose power, right? Submarine. Yep. It's like a giant building you can't lose power, of right? Course. And I saw the parallels in in, in how uh, like okay, you know, I, I I understand the concept. I can do that. I, I like it. It's, it's challenging and and it's booming. It's growing. You know, I, it's. Uh, you know, doing my own research, reading about everything. I said, no, this is something I could do the rest of my career. I could make it data centers. And so I made that commitment that like, yep, I found it. This is what I'm going to do. I'm going to invest the rest of my career into around in and around data centers. You know, one, it's challenging. Two, obviously the financial rewards is, is it financially makes sense to, to, yeah. to reap the rewards, right? Sure. So sometimes, sometimes, you know, decisions revolve around money. But it's not just for the money. It's I wanted the challenge, right? Well, I wanted to fulfill my purpose. Oh, allowed you to go back you know, home. Exactly. It seems like a lot of boxes it, it, checked. It's exactly. A big name. So, how long were you at Cisco? So I was at Cisco for almost two years, and then, and then uh, I found the opportunity with HDR. So how did that happen? So you know there there was uh, there's certainly some culture challenges that I was uh, identified when I was at Cisco that I wasn't happy with, and. And then, you know, my LinkedIn inbox starts getting beat up too of like people asking, sure. you know, looking for people. I said, well, let's, let's get out there and look. Let's see what is out there. I, I felt like I've only got like nine, two years experience and doing this kind of stuff. But, you know, I was out, my boss had left about nine minutes, nine months after I'd gotten there. And so then I kind of stepped up and elevated and took charge. And all right, here I am now. I'm trying to help run the show and help build the team. And I was, I needed help. I was asking for help here and there. And it just wasn't quite getting the help I needed. And, and, uh, found the opportunity with HDR to sound like, oh, the, what I'm trying to do here is exactly what they need over here. And they've got a ton of support. And so I really was gravitated towards the the leadership there and uh, the amount of support I was going to have. And, and and it's been everything I thought it would and then some. So, yeah, it's amazing people. Uh, the, my boss is at, you know technically out of London who manages our commissioning globally. And he's awesome. How big is HDR? Over 11,000 employees. Okay, so they're so big firm. No kidding. But uh, we're starting from scratch, trying to build a commissioning team here in North America. And so from in in three years, I went from not being in the, the, the industry to leading the data center commissioning team for all of North America for a major company. So um, you were an engineer, chief engineer on a fast attack submarine. That that's exactly. a big of a reach for me to understand that. And, and I've and I've realized too now it's like, oh, what mission critical experience do I have? Well, I've only been in the data center industry for maybe two, three years, but you want to talk about mission critical experience, talk about operating a nuclear submarine under the ice, right? Yeah. And uh, around the world, managing those people and managing the maintenance and managing the availabilities. And yeah, you know, it doesn't get much more mission critical than that. Right? So uh, if you were going back, and the reason why we do this podcast, right, is we love hearing stories and we want to share as many stories as we can. Obviously this week, focused heavy on veterans. I've released uh, a couple podcasts just recently with a couple of the business partners that started Overwatch with me. Both former army guys, they have a completely different, one was an officer, one was enlisted, both were infantry. Uh, the uh, officer had an enlisted background, so he kind of sp speaks both sides and understands, or empathizes, I guess, for both both challenges that come with both career fields. Yeah. Um, but, you know, my speech today at Data Center World was really focused on, you know, veterans and and my my hope was I stumbled into this industry by accident and then just kind of 
like you had a critical questioning attitude and just kind of kept trying to figure out um, how I can evolve and grow. And I've learned that this space really um, rewards those that have that appetite. Absolutely. And um, as long as you're willing to work hard, you know, that there's a lot of opportunity, right? So for me, I wish that there was a roadmap or a podcast that I could have listened to back in those days that said, hey, listen, I mean, this isn't the, the biggest megaphone in the world, but hopefully it reaches a few folks that it otherwise would have never learned about the data center industry. Yeah. And I've had civilians on here as well that have amazing stories and how they kind of stumbled into it and just kind of grew through the ranks. And now, you know, this week with the big presence and the big push on the veteran stuff that we're doing for data center world, I wanted to scoop you up and see if you could come in here and talk about that because the objective would be to find that narrative or find that message that we could share with someone else that would have been impactful for us. Like if there was a roadmap for you or yeah. a roadmap for me, perhaps we would have gotten here faster and been able to contribute or bring more value to the space faster. Yeah, absolutely. So for you now knowing what you know, and I'm obviously you heard me speak and you, you stand, I, I would imagine you understand my positioning on certain things. What would be the message that you would share with anybody that's listening to your story that um, you know grew up in some small town and didn't really know what to do and decided to you know enlist or do something else that they didn't take a traditional route they took their own way and then they discovered that as long as they kept putting themselves in a situation in which they had to be challenged all the time that you know the pressure testing actually helped propel you forward right so what would be your message for those people that are listening that um, aren't even sure of what they want to do when they get out they just know that they're ready for the next chapter no matter what you do, if it's something you don't want to, a career, a job, you don't want to be doing that, you still got to understand who's, who you are, right? Still just be you. Be be true to the way your work ethic, the way you communicate to people, the way you treat other people. Those skills, no matter what company you work for, you know, what industry you work in, those are all translatable skills, Right take those skills and, and work your tail off and be a good person and be a good leader and get that work that work ethic to just, all right, this is my job today. I'm going to figure out how to be the best person at fill in the blank today, you know, and I'm going to do everything I can to do this job to my standards, you know, or above and, and, you know, trying establishing that culture. You no. Know, so no matter what, and that's just me. I just, I just know how to be me no matter what I'm doing. Right. And, and it's, whether I was on a submarine and working in the shipyards or working in the data center, I'm just, you know, I, I work my tail off and I be myself. So if it's, if you're driven and, and want to work hard and you're going to, the benefits will come, things will come if you keep driving and keep that work ethic. And then, then you're, then you eventually will find yourself in a place where you're working for a co the company that you feel like you could work for the rest of your life, or you're working in the industry that you can work for the rest of your life. And you've been practicing all these skills all along. And then they they will carry you through the rest of your career and, and get you to where you want to go. So um, you said something, though, that I want to make sure that we recovered. I asked you why you went to go work for HDR. And you said the leadership, the vision of that yeah, leadership. Absolutely. So now knowing that, that that's what you, I mean, I don't think anybody coming out of the military looks at the first place they're going to go to is the final destination. Yeah. Typically, it's like, this seems like a comfortable place that I could go to until I figure out what I want to do when I kind of grow up, you know, when I figure it out more. And um, some people don't see it like that, but but that's still probably the case for them as well, right? Yeah. What would you tell those people to look for, you know, as they're transitioning out? What would you tell them to look for? Is it, I mean, we've had uh, resumes from veterans that are getting out in the next 30, 60, 90 days, and we reach yeah. out to them and they're like, you know, I have like four offers. I'm just trying to figure out which one's the highest and then I'm gonna do whatever. And I'm like, hey, that's great. Cause I've, I've, I've taken jobs for money instead of, Mm -hmm. fulfillment or joy or inspiration or job security of any kind. Yeah. I just did it because it seemed like, Hey, that the more money I make, the less shit I have to eat, you know? So yeah. it seems like a pretty good opportunity, but what would you now go back and tell people to look for when they don't know what they don't know? Absolutely. I think the most important thing is, is, is looking for the fit. You got to find what fits you and what, what fits me is not going to fit you. Right. You know, um, I got three young kids, right? It's got to fit for my family. It's got to fit me, which means it's got to fit my family. It's got to fit my, my wife, right? Um, you know, and so, and that's not, that might, 
it, it depends on and, and everybody, right? I've got a we're back in Chicago. The part of the reason I did that is because we have the family support, so I can go to a conference for a week and know that my family's still gonna. I've got tons of help in the area, right? So this job works for me. Being, but it works being in the Chicago area because I have all the family support, and that was one of the prime drivers to uh, taking the job and coming back to Chicago. So, um, but it's it's you've really got to know a company. You've got to do deep dive. You got to read their website. What are they about? Ask the question, who am I going to work for? You may report directly to somebody, but is that the person you're going to work with every day? I've always asked in my interviews that I've had for jobs is what's the culture like? Yeah. What's the subculture like within your team, right? There might be an overall certain type of culture, but I want to know the culture of the team I'm going to work with. Sure. Who's am I, who am I talking to every day? Who am I actually working for on a functional level? And, and what is that culture like? Well, why did you so, always focus on that? Because at the end of the day, it's people that mean, right? It's whether you're building submarines or you're building a data center, it's it's not the steel, it's not the servers, it's not the cables, it's the people, right? So no matter what you're doing, it's all about the people. And that is the most important asset that any company has. And that is the most, I mean, it's and it's trust. It's we we deal in the currency of trust when you're when you're dealing with people. I want to trust the person that I'm working with. I want to trust that, hey, working as a team, this is the ultimate goal. I need this deliverable. I want to trust that I'm going to get I'm going to get that deliverable, or I'm going to I trust that person that they're going to tell me ahead of time that I can't get you what you need. I need help. Sometimes that's the the biggest thing is being able to say I need help, and then or figuring out how to go get help so you can still deliver something on time. So I, I really think it's all about people and it's about trust within that organization. You know it. it Trust means different things, but when they in a professional relationship working for a company, hey, when you know they may not have all the answers, but you want to trust that when I you say you need help or you say I, I want to try and execute this and make this happen, that you're gonna have the support. Yeah. And then when you know sometimes things don't always work out, but as long as the trust is there and you just enjoy seeing that person's face or you enjoy getting the emails from them and 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 looking forward to working towards a common path with somebody that that's the most important thing to me yeah is, is just enjoying somebody's time working with somebody enjoying talking with them and not dreading getting on a call not dreading oh i dreading opening this email from this person right i, I don't want to work around that kind of stuff so i agree 100 percent. i um i i give a lot of credit to uh claude uh baron and mark breer who are my two captains and um, they were exceptional at what they did. And it's not because I had a great relationship with them. I think I stood tall in front of each one of them at least once probably, right? But they were always um, very um, transparent in the way that they, you know, rolled out their expectations to us. And they uh, did not tolerate, you know, mediocrity. Mm -hmm. And when I was a young junior sailor at that age, I mean, you're, you don't have that, you know, you need that. And, Sometimes you need a chief or someone else to kind of uh, remind you of those things. For me, they kind of ruined me, those two captains, and my department heads were awesome as well. And it's because I left the military and I expected and demanded a very high level of trust and respect from the people that I worked for. And I always did, you know, so um, I had the chance to go kind of change and reinvent myself every few years in this space. And every time, like you, I would always ask like, who's going to put their fingerprint on me? Like mm -hmm. who's going to be mentoring me or coaching me? And do they have something that could help develop me and grow? I never really cared who my boss was, but they had to be able to teach me. They had to be able to coach me and they had to be willing to develop, you know, me and, you know, it's my responsibility to show them that, that the, um, the capability or the talent was there, but I needed them to invest into helping me grow because I couldn't do it on my own. Yeah. yeah in, my, in my interview for HDR, I, I, I direct, like I, I said, I look forward to mentoring people, but I also expect to be mentored. Sure. Right. So, you know, in communicating that. So absolutely, you know, seeking out that mentorship and is, is huge. Awesome. And, and wanting to be mentored, right. And understanding what that means. And, the, you know, sometimes it takes sacrifices and you know, it takes a lot of internal willpower to force that mentorship onto yourself, right. You have to seek it out. Sometimes it's not always going to be there to be given to you, like getting mentored, it takes a lot of work on the mentee to like pull for it. Sure. And, and you know, you pull hard enough for it you're, and you'll get it. 
Um, you just got to find that right person, though, that's, you said, can imprint that fingerprint on you to, to help you get to where you need to go. So Yeah. I think, um, and we'll, I, it's data center week right now and everyone's downtown. So we'll, um, we'll shoot back down there in just a little bit and bring this on home. But as we were talking, it, it triggered, you reached out to me a few months ago because I did a podcast with, um, I think it was the data center hawk, data center hawk yeah, or data that. center frontier. Either way. Um, both those guys are fantastic and they gave me an opportunity to talk about what we're trying to get accomplished here with overwatch and, you know, we really have a lot of passion, obviously, for the mission critical vertical and yeah. always have. But also, you know, we do feel like it's our purpose or our mission to help bring on as much talent as we can from the veteran community, knowing that there's such a huge blind spot it is. in this space. And is, the talent's it, there. The yeah. talent is coming out. And and I think that I, on one of those podcasts, I probably mentioned that I was on the Memphis. And I think that you, you shot me a note and said, hey, I was also on the Memphis maybe or something like that. Yeah, I think you said you were on the Memphis. Or I think you had... Uh you're something in the background too yeah my, and the back of your wall and your in your office or something yeah and i saw the memphis and so so yeah that, i made that connection and then uh just the way you were speaking about your story and and uh how you got to be where you're at it was just like like oh well i need to meet this guy like we uh -huh. have very similar you know energy and mentality you know focus drive like yeah i need i need to get in front of him and here we are oh know? man so listen so, I'm glad you reached out yeah. and I'm uh, I'm glad that we finally got a chance to connect this morning for the first time, right? Yeah. But uh <clears throat> before I before I, you know, shut her down, was there any cool sea stories or anything like that you wanted to share? I mean, the <laughs> MacGyver story is going to be pretty the tough MacGyver to beat. MacGyver story is pretty cool. Um uh, Memphis sea story. We, right. we we we're in Rota, Spain. We've all got some euros left on us and we just want to spend it because we're not going to go exchange it anywhere. Otherwise sure. it becomes, you know, monopoly money back sure. home or something for us. Right. So we, we all pitched in and we're sitting there in this market and we bought a pig's leg, like a whole like brined pig leg with the hoof and all. Right. Like they usually you shave it like prosciutto, real thin. Right. So I don't know how much, it was maybe like two, $300. We bought this whole pig leg, brought it back to the boat. And thinking the captain's going to be upset or whatever. I mean, like, cause this is the last deployment, last underway of the Memphis. But we bring it back to the boat. Captain thought it was awesome. We hang it up in the wardroom and just over the next like week or so, we're just taking our pocket knives and hacking no away kidding. this thing. The, the dock was, was not happy or oh, pleased with us, you know, cause it, in the U.S. it doesn't have the hooves still attached. This thing still had the hoof attached and everything. So, uh, you know, it was kind of gross, but it was kind of cool. And we, we just hacked away at that thing. And then, uh, we were, we decided we were done with it, and we went to the captain. We said, "Captain, we're we're ready. Can we uh, request a surface the ship to uh, throw the pig leg overboard?" So we surfaced the ship, and uh, just to throw the pig leg overboard. And you know, we even announced it over the one MC. Yeah, pig leg departing. Yeah, and that's we did funny. That and and chucked that into the ocean and went back submerged and went back on our way. <laughs> Man, some of my greatest memories were being a junior sailor on the Memphis, and there's a a guy that. Uh, did you say you reached out to, I think it's James Tolliver. I only knew him as Commander Tolliver yeah. at the time. So he, it's so funny because he's in this space now too. Yeah. I think he's at Google and he's kicking ass, but I got to serve with him. And there's a few other guys in this space that I've ran around into that I served with. And it's a small world, man. But I, like, I have some amazing stories. Like I'm one of those guys that left the military that was super happy and loved what I did. And then I spent the rest of my time trying to, go to a business to where I was growing myself, but trying to reclaim that culture that we had so that I can um, maximize the level of productivity that I could do, right? Because yeah. I knew that I was at a higher level, even as a junior sailor, being around an environment that really rewarded your um, your courage, right? To like, we, we, were, we were pushed to do whatever we felt we could do, right? There was no limitations. So now that's all that we try to do with our current culture is try to yeah. unleash people, right? So decentralized command, you know, totally where, you know, we have department heads and those guys get to run the ship the way that they, they need they to. Will, and they just yeah. kind of tell me like, hey, that's what I intend to do. And, and I say, well, then go do it, right? So you just want that leader leader mentality. Yeah. And that's what we were trying to create. And that's what, that's what the Memphis I think offered as well. But, um, Hey, listen, I appreciate you making the time. Absolutely, Kirk. This has been great. You know, yeah, this is awesome. Uh, great to catch up and uh, great great just to get to know you more. And so, you know, and then 
is, you know, like I said, I'm, I'm trying to still establish myself as a lead. I, I see myself as becoming a leader in the industry, right? I just want, I don't want to just go commission some data centers. Like I really want to, the, the industry has a problem, right? It's a leadership problem. It's a people problem, right? We, we can't, the industry is growing faster than we can put people into it to get the experience. And it's going to take good leaders to grow people into this industry. And, and I don't want to be a part of that. Yeah. Me too. We want to help contribute as much as we can. So if HDR yeah. needs anybody, we'll help you find some yeah, veterans. Absolutely. So to, to that end, thanks for your time. Thanks for being here. I hope that our listeners enjoyed your story. And absolutely. I hope that the, this this podcast makes it into the ear holes of a few different folks that hopefully one day discover that, hey, I could in three years be on my way to be a leader in this industry and thought of as an identity, you know, a thought leader in commissioning or whatever it is. That, yeah, whatever it is. There's so many opportunities within just the data centers then yeah. commissioning that you can get into. I agree. And um, yeah, you just got to find, got to find your own path. And if, if it's, if it's something that excites you, there's enough people in the industry that will help mentor you that, to get there. But you got to go find those mentors by going to conferences or sitting on LinkedIn for three hours and finding people and, you know, and that's how I found you just going through LinkedIn, you know, and I said, Oh, I can connect with this guy and I, I can learn something from him. I don't know what, but I know I'll learn something. Right? Well, you were wrong. So, <laughs> so no, man, it's a pleasure to speak with you. And it was great. Absolutely. To find you. So thanks Thank again. Appreciate, appreciate it. it.